Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Kill Michael and the Burning of Cork City, The War of Independence, Part 20. Over the last two podcasts of the series, the war has intensified with the Fernside Raid, the death of Sean Tracy and then Bloody Sunday. In this episode, this unrelenting pace of events continues centred around one of the most famous ambushes of the war, Kilmichael. Now over the past few shows, you will also have heard me talking about my live show in Kilkenny on November the 6th. Unfortunately, due to rising Covid cases, I've had to postpone the event. Several people were in touch with understandable concerns, so I've decided to hold off until things are a little safer. I'm pretty gutted to be honest as it was shaping up to be a great night. Until the situation improves, things will have to stay online. But if you want to get more episodes of the show, you can get hours of bonus content on Acast Plus and at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. All the content there is also ad free. So if you find the adverts a bit annoying, just check out Acast Plus and patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Supporting the show over there has a major impact. I was just looking back and so far this year I've made 31 regular episodes. There's been five bonus shows with Dr. Brian Handley, not to mention the other exclusive episodes as well. This increase in production is only possible because of the support of listeners on Acast Plus and Patreon. They've allowed me to bring on board Sam who does the additional research, Jason on the sound and editing, as well as Aidan and Therese, who do additional narrations. Now next year, my target is to increase the amount of episodes in the main show. It's ambitious, but with your support on Acast Plus and Patreon, we can definitely do it. If you want to find out more, there's links in the show notes below. Finally, just to say we've added our first clothing range in the shop. They're polo shirts with the show logo. It's pretty cool, even if I say so myself. They'll make a great Christmas present for listeners, or if you just want to treat yourself. Anyway, head on over to the shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. 
That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop to check them out. Now to the show, and we start on the Liverpool docks in late November 1920. Additional research is by Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. And additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. On the evening of Saturday, November the 27th, 1920, the people of the English town of Birkenhead were mesmerised by what was a terrifying spectacle illuminating the northern horizon. On the far bank of the River Mersey, dozens of warehouses in the port of Liverpool were ablaze in an enormous conflagration that stretched for miles along the north bank of the river estuary. It was obvious to most who had done this. The port of Liverpool had been a hive of police activity in recent days. It had only been the previous Wednesday when the Chief Secretary for Ireland, Harmer Greenwood, had stood before the House of Commons with startling news. During a police raid in Dublin, the authorities had seized several IRA documents, which included a list of targets in several English cities, including a planned attack on the Liverpool docks. While the plans were released and appeared across numerous English newspapers on Thursday, November the 25th, many cast doubt on their veracity, believing them too sensational. The Westminster Gazette was somewhat sceptical, but nevertheless did call on the police to remain vigilant when it said, The actual scheme for destroying the Liverpool docks and the Manchester power station look a little fantastic, but would be the height of folly for the police not to regard very seriously the possibility that the disorders in Ireland may extend to this country. A few days later, as the people of Birkenhead watched the Liverpool docks burn, it was obvious the plans had in fact been very real. While the seizure of the documents in Dublin led to the cancellation of the original operation, the IRA in Liverpool had remained committed to carrying out an attack of one kind or another. One of those involved, the IRA volunteer Hugh Early, who was originally from Dublin, explained what happened after the original plans had been uncovered. During the next few days, these plans were published in all the leading English newspapers, including the Liverpool papers. The British now placed a very strong guard on the docks, and that was the end of the proposition. Within a week, we had a new plan in motion. Outside the docks, there are roadways and streets of warehouses. Most of these warehouses dealt in cotton, which is a very inflammable material. We planned to set fire to these. We procured bolt cutters to cut the locks, and on the night of the 27th of November 1920, We set fire to 15 of these warehouses and two timber yards. While some of the IRA volunteers had been caught in the act and one, Matthew Guinnessy, was nearly beaten to death by a mob, the plan had succeeded. The fire raged for hours, burning through the night, and as the people of Birkenhead woke the next morning, smoke was still drifting across the Mersey. The total estimate of the damage inflicted by the fires was somewhere in the region of a quarter of a million pounds at the time. When news of this attack reached London, it added to the growing pressure mounting on the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George. The war in Ireland, the same war he had said four weeks earlier was nearly over, was clearly getting completely out of control with each passing day. 
If he required further proof of all this, all he had to do was look out of his window at the workmen erecting barricades around Downing Street to protect his own home as it was feared the IRA might even strike there. While this was all deeply humiliating for Lloyd George, the unexpected arrival at Downing Street that very morning of the French Prime Minister Georges Lage, who was in London for talks, just added to his embarrassment. However, personal humiliations aside, there was no question he was now facing escalating controversy and criticism over his wider handling of the entire war in Ireland. The Liverpool docks attacks had brought this sharply into focus, following on less than a week after Bloody Sunday in Dublin. Among his most notable critics was Sir Henry Wilson, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, the effective head of the British Armed Forces. And he grew more vocal than ever in his stinging rebuke of Lloyd George's policy. Wilson wanted the army put in control in Ireland, arguing that Lloyd George's strategy of leaving them to play a supporting role to the police was not working. This had created numerous problems, not least among them a lack of clarity as to who had the final say over matters in Ireland, given both the police and the army were independent from each other. Over previous months, Wilson had demanded the government declare martial law across Ireland. However, politicians had repeatedly demurred. Lloyd George had to factor in other concerns. The House of Commons was continuing to debate the fallout from the Armritzer massacre, which had seen the British Army kill hundreds of Indians in 1919. Imposing martial law in Ireland in this context would have raised eyebrows, to say the least. In the aftermath of Bloody Sunday, he had continued to resist Wilson's calls and instead internment without trial of suspected IRA volunteers had been introduced. Indeed, by Sunday, November the 28th, just one week after Bloody Sunday, 500 people had already been arrested in Ireland. But this measure of internment would not and did not satisfy the army. Henry Wilson continued to insist there was no way around the matter. To win the war, martial law had to be declared and the British army put in control. Ultimately, this decision over strategy was decided late in the afternoon on that Sunday, November the 28th, in the most unlikely of places, a remote valley in West Cork. The town of McCroom in West Cork is a gateway to the stunning landscapes of the Beira Peninsula on the Atlantic Ocean further west. While tourists have been drawn to the region since the mid-19th century, Few had ventured south from McCroom into the Lee Valley, where a lonely road winds through the uplands, eventually taking a traveller to the town of Dunmanway. This route passes through isolated, remote terrain populated by a handful of small villages, Toon Bridge, Shunlara, and a place that would gain worldwide fame given what unfolded there on November 28, 1920, Kilmichael. With its six houses and population of 31 people, this was certainly not the place one would expect the history of the British Empire to turn. While Lloyd George entertained his French counterpart, the French Prime Minister, Georges Lege, on the morning of November the 28th, a unit of 36 IRA volunteers had already taken up position along the dunmanway McCroom Road just outside Kilmichael. They had a somewhat dishevelled appearance. Having gathered at 2am the previous night, they had been thoroughly soaked by driving rain. To add to their discomfort, they hadn't eaten since the previous evening. This was far from ideal preparation for what lay ahead of them. 
They were planning to ambush a convoy of lorries carrying members of the Auxiliary Division travelling from Dunmanway back to their base at McCroom Castle. These men, drawn from the officer class of the British Army, were heavily armed, while several had experience of intense combat in the First World War. Aside from the fact that they were cold, wet and hungry, the IRA volunteers' weapons left a lot to be desired, given the task at hand. While many did carry rifles, some had to make do with what were poor substitutes. Timothy Kyohan, for example, one of the volunteers, was armed with a shotgun. The rifle he had been expecting had not arrived in time. Then, when they had reached the location of their planned attack, they took up what was a poor setting for an ambush. Jack Hennessy, one of those present, explained, The place selected for the ambush was running through marshy land. There was no line of retreat. While this might have seemed like a lack of experience to some, it had been intentional on the part of Tom Barry, the IRA commander of these men at Kilmichael. Years later, in his recollections, in his book, Guerrilla Days in Ireland, Barry recalled, Before being posted, the whole column was paraded and informed of the plan of attack. They were also told that the positions they were to occupy allowed no retreat. The fight could only end in the smashing of the auxiliaries or the destruction of the flying column. There was no plan for their retirement until the column marched away victoriously. This would be a fight to the end and would be vital not only for West Cork but for the whole nation. If the auxiliaries were not broken that day in their first fight with the Irish army, then the sufferings and degradations of the Irish race would surely continue until another generation arose. The auxiliaries were killers without mercy. If they won, no prisoners would be brought back to McCroom. The alternative now was kill or be killed. See to it that it is those terrors die and are broken. The volunteers then took up positions in various locations along the road, expecting two or possibly even three lorries of auxiliaries. Hour after hour passed by with no sign. Their only sustenance was a bucket of tea and a small amount of food sent up from a local farm. It was only as darkness began to creep up on the horizon at 4pm that the convoy was finally spotted. It was two lorries containing 18 members of the auxiliary division. As planned, When the first of these lorries arrived, it was allowed to move deep into a trap. Then, Tom Barry, himself dressed in a volunteer's uniform, appeared on the road ahead of this first lorry, while the rest of the volunteers remained hidden behind walls and ditches. Behind Barry himself was a handful of men who had taken up position behind a makeshift stone wall, referred to as the command post. The following is again from Tom Barry's book, Guerrilla Days in Ireland. He himself is the uniform figure he refers to. The first lorry came around the bend into the ambush position at fairly fast speed. For 50 yards it maintained its speed and then the driver, apparently observing the uniformed figure, gradually slowed it down until at 50 yards from the command post it looked as if it was about to stop. But it still came on slowly and as it reached 35 yards from the small stone wall the mills bomb was thrown An automatic barked and the whistle blew. The bomb sailed through the air to land in the driver's seat of the uncovered lorry. As it exploded, the rifle shots rang out. The lorry lurched drunkenly, but still came on. Impelled by its own weight, the footbrake no longer pressed as the driver was dead. On it came the auxiliaries firing their revolvers at the IRA, who were pouring lead into them. 
and then the lorry stopped a few yards from the small stone wall. Some of the auxiliaries were now fighting from the road, and the fight became a hand-to-hand one. Revolvers were used at point-blank range, and at times, rifle butts replaced rifle shots. So close were the combatants that in one instance, the pumping blood from an auxiliary's severed artery struck one attacker full in the mouth before the auxiliary hit the ground. The auxiliaries were cursing and yelling as they fought, but the IRA were tight-lipped as ruthlessly and coldly they outfought them. The entire party of auxiliaries in this lorry were killed. Meanwhile, Back down the road, the second lorry in the convoy had come under a sustained attack from the other group of volunteers. However, as it was raked by gunfire, the auxiliaries inside this lorry piled out and took cover off the road where they could find it. This began what would become a much longer fight. The second lorry driver started reversing the vehicle back down the road, clearing lines of fire between the IRA volunteers on the one side and the auxiliaries on the other. This started what would prove to be a bloody encounter. The fighting eventually turned against the auxiliaries as Tom Barry and the men who had attacked the first lorry made their way back down the road to support their comrades. This left the remaining auxiliaries heavily outnumbered. What happened next in this ferocious encounter has become one of the most deeply controversial aspects of the entire ambush at Kilmichael. Timothy Kyohan recalls these events now. Tom Barry then called on the enemy to surrender, and some of them put up their hands. But when our party were moving onto the road, the auxiliaries again opened fire. Two of our men, John Lorden and Jack Hennessy, I think, were wounded by his fire. The Jack Hennessy mentioned also had similar memories of this incident. He later recalled, I heard the three blasts and got up from my position shouting, Hands up! At the same time, one of the auxies about five yards from me drew a weapon. He had thrown down his revolver. I pulled on him and shot him dead. I got back to cover where I remained for a few minutes, firing on the living and the dead Augsies on the road. Finally, Tom Barry himself had a very similar memory of the events. We heard the auxiliaries shout, We surrender! We kept running along the grass edge of the road as they repeated the surrender cry and actually saw some auxiliaries throw away their rifles. Firing stopped, but we continued still unobserved to jog towards them. Then we saw three of our comrades on number two section stand up, one crouched and two upright. Suddenly, the auxiliaries were firing again with revolvers. One of our three men spun around before he fell, and Pat Deasy staggered before he, too, went down. While I will return to the precise details of this false surrender later on, what's most important is the outcome of the Kilmichael ambush. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
When silence fell over the Lonely Valley, 16 of the 18 auxiliaries were dead. A 17th was so badly injured that the IRA volunteers assumed he too had been killed, while the 18th, the driver of the second lorry, Cecil James Guthrie, had survived. He was spotted running away from the ambush site, and although a volunteer, Sonny Dave Crowley, fired several shots at him, he managed to escape. However, later that evening, Guthrie was spotted by local IRA volunteers at Drumcara, about four kilometres away. He was seized and subsequently shot dead. On the Republican side, while three IRA volunteers had been killed in the ambush, the 33 survivors were extremely rattled. Tom Barry later remembered the need to re-establish order in the column. Some showed the strain of the ordeal through which they had passed, and a few appeared on the point of collapse because of shock. The impact of the day's events at Kilmichael were profound. The auxiliaries, supposedly the elite division introduced to take on the IRA, had suffered an appalling defeat, and following on from the events of Bloody Sunday a week earlier, any sense that the Crown forces were nearing victory evaporated. It led to a sense of shock, even fear, in Britain. The Nottingham Evening Post described it as The Battle in Cork. The Lancashire Evening Post predicted it would lead to even worse defeats, running with the headline McCroom ambush feared forerunner of further outrages. In the following days, wild claims as to what had exactly taken place at Kilmichael began to surface, including accusations that the bodies of the auxiliaries had been hacked up with axes. This began what would be a century of controversy around Kilmichael. There's no doubt some of the bodies of the auxiliaries were disfigured. This, however, was from the intense fighting. Kilmichael had been an extremely bloody encounter fought at close quarters. Multiple IRA volunteers talked about having to use rifle butts as weapons. However, the notion that axes were used was just propaganda. A more enduring accusation was that the IRA had shot the auxiliaries in cold blood after they had surrendered. This had its foundation in the fact that the coroner found bullet wounds in the armpits of some of the dead auxiliaries, indicating they had been shot with their arms in the air. However, as we heard from some of the accounts earlier, the IRA volunteers present always categorically refuted this over the following decades. Instead, they consistently claimed that the auxiliaries had feigned a surrender before opening fire again, after which the IRA volunteers had returned fire, killing the auxiliaries, bar one. The most likely scenario, I think, is one best articulated by John Dorney and Carl Brennan in their podcast, The Irish History Show. I've linked to the episode in the show notes below. They argue that some, but not all, of the auxiliaries probably did surrender but it was not part of a coordinated plan to lure the IRA to drop their guard. There was simply no time to arrange something as complex as that. Instead, in the confusion, while some auxiliaries did surrender, others continued firing. In this situation, it's easy to imagine how the IRA volunteers assumed it was a strategy to catch them off their guard. While this issue of the false surrender dominates debates and discussions around Kilmichael in the 21st century. In terms of the story of the War of Independence and how it unfolded, the precise nature of what happened in terms of the false surrender is not actually really that important. At the time, the impact of Kilmichael and the fact that so many auxiliaries had been killed in one encounter was what really mattered. In Ireland, it imbued the IRA with confidence that they could defeat the supposedly elite auxiliaries. In London, the British cabinet were shocked 
Two days later, on November the 30th, a high-level meeting between Harmer Greenwood, the Chief Secretary for Ireland, Winston Churchill, the Secretary of State for War, Sir Henry Wilson, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, and John Anderson, the most powerful civil servant in Ireland who had travelled over from Dublin, was convened to discuss the way forward. The debate was no longer about if martial law would be introduced, but rather whether it would be across the entire Ireland or just in the most disturbed parts of the country. Greenwood and Churchill, both politicians, realised that martial law in Ireland was now inevitable and they scrambled to change their previous opposition to it in order to present themselves as having always been on the right side of unfolding events. Henry Wilson mused in his diary later that evening after the meeting. Greenwood inferred he had always been in favour of it and so did Winston. Their only doubt being whether we had enough troops. What amazing liars. Lloyd George was also changing his view. When describing Kilmichael, he said, It was a military operation, and there was a good deal to be said for declaring a state of siege or martial law in that corner of Ireland. As the political opposition to martial law in Ireland wilted, the army in Ireland were also now consulted about the logistics involved. Bizarrely, the commander-in-chief in Ireland, Neville Macready, was holidaying in the French Riviera, despite the fact that the war in Ireland had been escalating for weeks, and he had not yet returned. But nearly all other senior British army figures supported the introduction of martial law. At a cabinet meeting in London on December 1st, 1920, three days after Kilmichael, a major shift in British policy was agreed. Martial law was to be declared across the counties Cork, Tipperary, Limerick and Kerry from December 10th. This would have a very real impact on the lives of people across the country, but in particular for Republicans and their supporters. Numerous activities, including even lending aid to members of the IRA, now carried the death sentence in these counties. In mid-December, the following details, which listed all the new crimes under martial law, were published across several newspapers in Ireland. The following proclamation is now to be posted in those parts of Ireland declared to be under martial law. A. All arms, ammunition and explosives in possession of any person not a member of His Majesty's naval, military, air or police forces or who is not in possession of a permit will be surrendered by the 27th of December 1920. B. After the 27th of December 1920, any unauthorised person found in possession of arms, ammunition or explosives will be liable on conviction by the military court to suffer death. C. Any unauthorised person wearing the uniform or equipment of His Majesty's naval, military, air or police forces or wearing similar clothing to deceive will be liable on conviction to suffer death and any person in unauthorised possession of such clothing or equipment will be liable on conviction by a military court to suffer penal servitude. D. Note well that a state of armed insurrection exists, that any person taking part therein or harbouring any person who has taken part therein or procuring, inviting, Hiding or abetting any person to take part therein is guilty of levying war against His Majesty the King and is liable on conviction by a military court to suffer death. All law courts, corporations, councils and boards are hereby directed to continue to carry out their functions until otherwise ordered. Even though these were severe, 
This did not go far enough in the minds of many in the British Army. One of the reasons they had wanted martial law was that it would clear up the issues around the chain of command and who exactly was in control of the Crown forces in Ireland. They had wanted martial law declared across the entire island so the army would have the final say in all matters. Now, however, given that martial law had only been extended across four counties, there were in effect two jurisdictions in Ireland, a military one in these counties in the southwest, and then the civilian government over the rest of Ireland. Further to this, the fifth clause in the conditions of the martial law that were published in Irish newspapers had stated that the court system would continue to function even in areas under martial law. For the army, they felt this further limited their freedom of action given that decisions they took could be challenged in the courts. In many ways, this introduction of martial law was the worst in both worlds from a British strategic point of view. It didn't give the army the freedom to act as they had wanted, but it also drew down huge criticism at home and abroad. When it was introduced, General McCready, in his preamble to the Declaration of Martial Law, had tried to assuage concerns of the wider public about what it meant when he said, Great Britain has no quarrel with Irishmen. Her sole quarrel is with crime, outrage and disorder. Her sole object in declaring martial law is to restore peace to a distracted and unhappy country. Her sole enemies are those who have countenanced inspired and participated in rebellion, murder and outrage. This rang hollow for the vast majority of people in Ireland who had seen and experienced the policy of reprisals the British authorities had exacted on the Irish population in recent months. Indeed, many of their worst nightmares about what martial law might mean materialised less than 48 hours after it had been declared when the Crown forces burned the centre of Cork City. In the days after the Kilmichael ambush, perhaps buoyed on by the successes of their comrades there, the IRA in Cork City stepped up their surveillance of the auxiliary division in the city which were quartered in the Victoria barracks. While they attempted to launch an ambush on December the 8th as an auxiliary patrol left the barracks, this did not happen as the patrol never materialised. However, three days later, on the evening of December the 11th, the IRA not only learned that the auxiliaries would leave the barracks that night, but the British Army Intelligence Officer, Captain Joseph O'Connor Kelly, would be with them. O'Connor Kelly had long been a target of the Cork IRA, but rarely left the confines of the barracks. This was clearly going to be an opportunity they could not miss. A group of volunteers from the Cork No. 1 Brigade took up positions at a place called Dillon's Cross, located a few hundred metres from the Victoria Barracks. They had chosen this location because the crossly tender lorries in which the auxiliaries travelled would have to slow down as they took a sharp turn at the crossroads. The intelligence that they had received about the auxiliaries proved accurate and when the lorries approached the corner it was attacked with grenades and gunshots. Twelve auxiliaries were wounded in the Dillon's Cross ambush, one of them fatally. However, it was actually the government's reprisals later that night that would become the news story. It completely eclipsed this ambush. When word spread through Cork of what had happened at Dillon's Cross, a sense of foreboding immediately spread through the city. While revenge attacks on the part of the Crown forces was par for the course by this stage, in Cork that night, an anxiety and fear that something terrible was about to happen 
spread among the population. One IRA volunteer who was not present at the Dillon's Cross ambush later remembered the atmosphere in the city. From the moment we heard of the bloody ambush of the Augsies that night, we felt a peculiar sense of impending tragedy, a foreboding that something terrible was going to happen. All lights in the front rooms of the Shamrock Hotel on Grand Parade were put out, and the residents keeping to the back rooms at the rear. True to form, not long after the ambush, the reprisals started in the vicinity of the Victoria Barracks. Soldiers vented their fury on a shop and a house where the Fenian, Brian Dillon, had lived. The junction, Dillon's Cross, was named in his honour. The house that was severely damaged that night would later be completely demolished by an army tank a few weeks later. However, back on that night of December the 11th, 1920, the reprisals continued into the city centre. Gunfire was heard on the main thoroughfare of Cork, Patrick Street. In the following hours, several buildings in the city centre were set alight by rampaging soldiers and soon a large area of the city centre was ablaze. The wanton destruction continued into the early hours of the morning. Cork City Hall, where the local council met, was burned, as was the public library in the city centre. The Black and Tans also raided the house of two IRA volunteers, Cornelius and Joseph Delaney, both of whom were killed. By the following morning, four acres of Cork City had been burned. The total cost of the damage was estimated to be around £4 million at the time. This far exceeded any act of reprisal committed by the Crown forces in the war so far. The burning of Cork City bookended a month that had transformed the war. On November the 9th, Lloyd George had claimed in London that he had murder on the run, intimating that the war was nearly won. Through the following four weeks, Bloody Sunday, the attacks in Liverpool, Kilmichael, the declaration of martial law across the southwest, the Dillon's Cross ambush, and then the burning of Cork, suggested the war was far from over. However, even though the conflict had intensified, or perhaps precisely because it had, the first serious attempts at agreeing a truce and arranging peace talks began amidst this violence. In the next episode, we'll look at these political manoeuvrings as the President of the Doyle and one of the most senior Irish Republicans, Eamon de Valera, re-enters our story. Until next time, Sloan. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.